Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Morning again. So we are in Philippians. If you want to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Thank you for the week off. It's good to be with you, but it was good to be away from you. No, that's not what I meant to say. It's not that it was good to be away from you. It was good to be on vacation. It was good to, we we had a very enjoyable trip. It was very, very hot when we left, and it was hot when we got there. But man, when that cold front rolled in Monday, had these beautiful days in the low 80s and Nights in the low 60s, so it was uh, just about perfect weather. And, uh, yeah, we didn't do a lot. We did, uh, we did the kind of vacation where you just decompress and chill. Saw a couple shows, but uh, did a lot of just laying around, which was wonderful. Philippians, this is a letter uh, the Apostle Paul has written to the church in Philippi, and it's a church that Paul has a close personal relationship with. Uh, This is a church that had supported Paul with their finances, supported Paul's ministry with their prayers, and it's a church that cares a great deal about Paul's well-being, and Paul is writing this from prison in Rome. So they've got concerns, and so part of his reason, uh, his reason, now you got to understand, when I talk a lot during these uh, teachings on these epistles, I say Paul said this, Paul wrote this, because he did, but let's never lose sight of the fact that this is still the inspired word of God. The Holy Spirit is speaking this, is breathing this through Paul. Is Paul, Paul personally represented in this letter? Absolutely. Just like the Gospels reflect the personality of the authors, and yet they are still being inspired and directed by the Holy Spirit. So yes, this is God's word to Philippi. Yes, this is God's word to us. But Paul himself is writing this, and so there are some personal considerations in there. And one of Paul's motives is just to assure them that just because he's in prison, they don't need to despair. Paul is convinced he's in the center of God's will for his life, and that fills him with joy. So he's writing to assure them that all is well. They are praying for his deliverance, and Paul writes to them that he knows he will be delivered one way or the other. He might be released from prison, which it turns out he was, and uh, he might die. But either way, he wins. One is just as good for him as the other because if he dies, it means he gets to be with Jesus. We've read this. This is review. He encourages them to be strong in the face of persecution like he is being. He tells them to follow his example. And uh, then he ups the ante, as it were, by reminding them that Christ himself suffered persecution. The Son of God, God the Son, humbled himself through obedience, perfect obedience, all the way to death, death on a cross. And that is, uh, here's where we wrapped up two weeks ago when we left off in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. It says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, I want to point something out about this. We're not going to get super far today uh, because I just want to spend a little time uh, opening this up a little bit more. 
uh, listen carefully because I want to make sure you don't think I'm saying something I'm not saying. Uh, but let's go back. Do you remember when Jesus was before Pilate? This is right before he was crucified. And Pilate's giving him this interview. He's got the crowd that's calling for Jesus to be, you know, give us, you know. And Pilate says, you want me to release Barabbas to you? They're like, no, no. Or release Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And they're like, and he says, well, uh, I don't find anything wrong with him. He kind of goes back and forth. And he has this interview with Jesus. And he tells him at one point, don't you understand that I have the power to either release you or to kill you? He wants a little humility. He wants Jesus to give him something. We see hints that Pilate's heart was to release Jesus. He's certainly being urged by his wife, who had been troubled with uh, dreams about Jesus. So he's looking for an excuse. He's like, Jesus, give me something. And, and that, but he, he tells him, I have power over you. And what was Jesus' response? You have no power over me except what my Father has given you. He stresses that no one takes my life away from me. When I die, it's because I lay my life down. It's so important that Jesus made this point. You know, uh, and it's clear that Pilate was shaken to some degree by this uh, conversation with Jesus. There's no scriptural evidence. There is uh, some rumor. There's some, um, uh, I don't put a lot of stock in it, but there are some who believe very firmly that Pilate uh, was converted not long after this. You know, Pilate lost his job. He was, he was not a very efficient ruler. Uh, this is history that tells us this. A secular history tells us this, that he had a kind of a brutal streak. He kind of, he did some things and he ruled in a way that caused, it stirred up riots and stuff uh, uh, in the area that he was governor over. So he lost his position. And some tradition, some church tradition, again, not scripture, but some church tradition tells us that Pilate was converted through the testimony of his wife. He's actually been elevated uh, to sainthood in certain areas of the world, although not through the Catholic church at large. Uh, anyway, I don't know. There's, again, there's no scriptural evidence that Pilate was converted, but he, but he was shaken. And my point is that Jesus didn't have to say anything to Pilate. You know, Pilate was as drunk with power as any politician and convinced that he held Jesus' life in his hands. And I love that Jesus didn't argue, but he did set him straight. He did bother to tell him, no, you don't have power over me. He was not looking forward to the horrors of the cross, but he was going willingly because he knew how it would turn out. He knew how it would turn out. So he could say boldly before Pilate, I'm going not because you're making me go, but because it's God's will that I go to the cross. He, he can see to the other side of that. He sees the resurrection. He sees you. He sees me reconciled to God because of this. And so he's able to go because he, know, he knows how it turns out. And we know how it turns out. Remember? And it's important to remember this, that there is so much stuff around us that is aimed at ridiculing us, insulting us, making light of what you and I hold dear or certainly ought to hold dear as truth. And I usually remind us at this point, I remind myself, I remind you that this, is, this does not rise to the level of true persecution. You know, remember, there are believers, not just down through history, although that's certainly true, but believers right here, right now, not right here, but right now, who are in prison, who are being tortured, who are being killed 
for confessing what you and I confess here openly and sing about openly. That's persecution. And yet, at the same time, I don't want to make too light of what we go through. We live in a culture that is very hostile to genuine Christianity. And sometimes it can be hard. And when we're challenged, we don't always have an answer that is ready. But you also see this, and you've probably, if you have been open about your faith at all, or if you've been curious enough to read things, watch things, I mean, there's so many uh, things that are just available at the click of a button now, if you just want to read something. But it's one thing, if somebody comes up to you, and even if they're a little challenging, if they want to have an honest conversation, and they might ask a hard question, they might ask a question that you don't have an immediate answer for, But if they're really looking for answers, that's not too hard. You you can say, give me some time, let's talk about this, let me pray about it. But when somebody just makes a point of saying, here's why I don't believe, and in the process of giving their reason for not believing, it's just filled with ridicule and insult. That makes it, it puts you on the defensive, especially if you don't have an immediate answer. Now, here's the thing. I've referenced this little video before. I don't even know who this guy is. I just know that, that uh, he's, he's famous in some circles, British comedian named Stephen Fry. I don't know if anybody's seen this interview, but I referenced this interview before, uh, and it comes up. It'll turn up in my inbox. Somebody will, will link it to me or something because they, they think I ought to see it. And uh, he's the guy I mentioned. I don't know who the interviewer is either. Some distinguished gentleman is asking him about his atheism. And he says, now, just imagine, just play along with this for a moment. What if you die and it turns out you're wrong and you find yourself standing at the pearly gates before God? What will you say then? And Fry says, I'll say, bone cancer in children? How dare you? Really? And then starts throwing out, and it's this, this whole, and, and the way his whole attitude just makes me want to put my fist through the screen because he's so smug. And he's presenting this as if this is just a Christianity killer, that this is some brilliant argument. And his whole point, everything he's saying is so, it's, philosophically unsophisticated, like I said, it's smug, any biblically literate Christian should be able to answer this guy. There's not much to it. But it's this whole, if, God, if this God exists, he's obviously a maniac. He's capricious. He's mean. If it, if it turns out to be the Greek gods, I'd probably get a little further along with them because they didn't pretend not to have faults like this. And so then the interviewer says, and you really think you're going to get in with an answer like that? And he says, no, but I don't want to. I wouldn't want to be in a kingdom like that. Not on his terms. Okay. Now again, if I were interested in countering every point the guy made, which, the video is only three minutes long. You can look it up later if you want. The, the answers to those questions are, are, they have been dealt with. And here's the thing. He's, he's saying this in a YouTube video that's easy to watch and saying it like, I've got this killer argument 
And he has to know himself that the answer to his challenge is just as easy to find as his little video is. There are thousands of apologetics videos with good answers to these questions. There's nothing new about these challenges. What gets me is the attitude. Here's the thing that, that it's not what the guy's saying that makes me go, oh, wow, uh, this is a really uh, important question. This is an important challenge. It's a childish challenge, and it's an age-old challenge. Nothing new. Here's what grabs me about it. When he does this, what will you say to God? And his answer is this whole, how dare you? What I want to say is, no, you won't. You know what you're going to say when you're face-to-face with God? You're going to say, oh, my God, oh, my God, Jesus Christ is Lord. And you're going to say it from your knees. That's one of the things Paul is writing about here, that Jesus, through, through ultimate humility, ultimate obedience to the point of the cross, has experienced ultimate exaltation so that at the very name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will say and agree that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in that moment, not only is Christ exalted, but we are vindicated. You see what I'm saying? We who have suffered, whether we've suffered persecution, loss, insult, ridicule, we will be exalted with him. Why? Because we are in him. This is the part we got to be careful. Make sure you don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. I am not saying that the unrepentant will bow before us. Okay? We will not be worshipped. Now the word does say that we will rule and reign with him. Okay? And I believe there's this bittersweet moment When every word of insult, every slight, every act of genuine persecution, every smug response, every flip rejection of the gospel will haunt these people as they bow the knee. Again, it's one thing. Here's what's tough. If you have a genuine, deep conversation with somebody who's not hostile, they just remain unconvinced. What is their fate? If they reject Jesus, their fate is hell. There's no satisfaction in that. But for somebody whose every response is smug, it's profane, it's it's blasphemous, will there be a moment when we can look them in the eye where everything that they have said, every bitter, hate-filled, every venomous thing that they have spewed on us personally and on the church at large, to be able to look them in the eye as they bow the knee and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. There's something satisfying and vindicating about that. That's not the whole point of it. The point is Jesus Christ is exalted. There's that song, uh, Come, Now is the Time to Worship. Remember that? Come, now is the time to worship. One day, every tongue will confess you are Lord. One day, every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains. Uh, Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. Now I have heard things and read things 
things like I'm about to share with you from thinkers and Christians, believers that I respect. Guys like C.S. Lewis, Ravi Zacharias have shared this. And I think when Ravi shares it, he's kind of uh, parroting C.S. Lewis. This idea that for those who hate God, who hate the word, who hate the church, who hate religion, and refuse to submit to God here and now, that heaven itself would be like hell for them. I get what they're saying. They would find heaven to be a kind of hell because the last thing they ever want is to be in the presence of a God before whom they will bow and worship. And uh, again, this is kind of where Fry, what Fry is saying with his response when the guy says, you think you'll get into heaven with a response like that? And he says, no, I would not want to be there. I disagree. I respectfully disagree. Lord knows, Ravi Zacharias, C.S. Lewis, and others have a greater mind than mine, but they can be wrong too. I happen to be right. They happen to be wrong on this one, and I'll tell you why. Maybe you've ever had a nightmare. Bad one. One that shakes you. You wake up in a sweat. You're breathing hard. Your heart's beating. And you wake up from this dream. And it's bad that you had the nightmare. You've had to comfort a child with a nightmare. Did really only five people raise their hands that you've had a nightmare? Because I, I don't want to be, do I need to define what a nightmare is? How many of you have had a bad, bad dream? Okay, so you, wait, so you had this bad dream, and that's a bad experience. I don't wish it on anybody. I don't want you to have a bad dream. But you know what's cool about a bad dream? is when you wake up from it, once the moment pass, passes, guess what? There's this relief. Why? Because it's not real after all. Man, I, I used to have recurring nightmares, and they weren't nightmares like uh, monsters chasing me or bloody murders or things like that. It was back when I was in the guard. I would, I would, I would dream that we we're getting uh, called up. You've got to be here in 12 hours with all your stuff. And my nightmare is I can't find my stuff. Okay, stupid stuff like that. But it made me, it just stressed me out, things like that. And I don't know why I would have, there must be some deep-rooted psychological reason I would have a dream like that, but I can't begin to imagine what it is. Anyway... Uh, you wake up from a bad dream, and then, yeah, the dream itself is bad, but it's great to wake up. It's great to find out it's not true. Now, have you ever had a really good dream? I mean, you're dreaming about something wonderful. And you wake up, and for a moment, it's like, that was a really nice dream. And then have you ever experienced that crushing moment when you realize, oh, no, that didn't really happen? Do you know what I'm talking about? The letdown from finding out a good dream was not true, to me, is way worse than the relief of finding a bad dream was not true. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Am I the only one that's experienced this? It's like it's a, if it's a wonderful dream, now I'm not, and again, I'm not talking about fantasy. Oh, I can't really fly through space without a space suit or a rocket. I'm talking about you're, you're dreaming about a, reconcil- a reconciled relationship. Or, or, or uh, you're succeeding at something that you've tried forever. You know, something that is at least realistic. But it's happening in your dream. And then you wake up, oh, it's not really happening. Multiply that feeling by a million. Because that, I believe, will be the real reaction of those who rejected Christ when they finally come face to face with him. It's not just, oh no, I'm going to hell. But rather, God is real. Jesus is Lord. He's wonderful. This is heaven. It's beautiful. And I can't stay. 
This is wonderful. He is wonderful beyond my wildest imaginations. And I am going to be eternally separated from him. It's too late for me. I'm not going to do this justice, but years ago, Jeff Canfield, many of you know, my brother-in-law, pastors in Sullivan, Indiana, he shared a dream or a vision that he had. Do you guys remember this? Where he, he, I think it was more like a vision, uh, where he saw himself being drawn, kind of floating through space, being drawn toward this uh, beautiful, glowing, warm, bright light. And the closer he got to it, the more wonderful he felt until he felt he was just about to burst from pleasure. And, just, and he realizes intuitively in this dream that he was getting near to God. But it's just this overwhelming feeling of joy and satisfaction and peace and comfort on levels that you could never even have imagined. And just as he's about to touch it, something pulls him back. And he's rocketed away from this presence. And there's this stark sense of loss. And no, 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 no. And God spoke to him and said, that's what it's going to be like on judgment day for the unbeliever. They're going to finally see me and experience me me just long enough to know that they've lost me forever. I can't... uh, that's usually the way I try to answer it when people say, do people really literally boil in a lake of fire forever for rejecting Christ? And my answer is, I don't know. I really don't know. All I know is this is the language Jesus used to describe the fate of the, of the unbeliever. What's horrible about hell is that you will be very, very aware that you are not with Jesus. Now, the unbeliever, you tell an unbeliever like that right now, like a Stephen Fry, who cares? I don't want to be with a God like that. But they're going to come face to face with him first and realize that, yeah, they do. Hell is going to be the eternal knowledge that you're separated from him. Nothing we have to put up with here compares with that. And I need, we need to keep that in mind, that if we love our fellow man, we ought to be able to put up with a lot in our efforts to spare them from that. Does that make sense? This is exactly, this was exactly Jesus Christ's mindset. What did he, when, when we talk about him submitting, uh, ultimate submission, submitting to death, becoming obedient to death on the cross, that's exactly why he did it. He put up with the insults. He put up not just with the insults and the rejection, but with ultimate persecution tortured to death on the cross. Why? Because he loves us and didn't want anybody to have to experience the scenario I just described. Let this mind also be in you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad 
and rejoice with me. Now that started with a therefore, and you know what you do. If you see the word therefore, go back and see what it's there for. He's just talked about, uh, let this mind also be in you, which was in Christ, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet submitted to death on the cross. And God has highly exalted him, the name above every name. Therefore, my beloved, because of this, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to behave. And the next thing he says, you know, like, you know, you've always, you are always obedient in my presence. Make sure you're the same way in my absence. Work out your salvation. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. This is one of those verses that people get hung up on because the gospel of grace is what? We don't work for our salvation at all. Our salvation is a free gift from God. Who worked for our salvation? Who secured our salvation? Who purchased our salvation? We don't do it with our good works, do we? Jesus Christ did it. Purchased it at the cross. We believe, we confess, we're saved. He is not saying work for your own salvation. He's saying work out your own salvation. Anybody know what the Greek word is for work it out? Katergatsumai. Where have we seen that one before? In James, where the trying of your faith worketh patience or produces patience. That's that katergatsumai. What's it mean? It means something that is already there on the inside gets worked to the outside. My favorite illustration of this word is an apple tree or a fruit tree. An apple tree is not an apple tree because it produces apples. It produces apples because it is in the tree to produce apples. Certain conditions, I mean, it's always, it's going to be an apple tree whether it bears, bears fruit or not. But if, if the soil is cultivated, if it's in the right climate, it's going to bear fruit if it's healthy, if it's growing like it should. This is what Paul's saying, look. Since all this is true, since Jesus did what he did to purchase your salvation, you take that salvation that is in you and you work it out among the people who have not experienced it yet. You're going to shine like lights in the midst of a dark and perverse generation if you will cotter God semi. Not earn your salvation, but take that salvation, cultivate it, work it, speak it, live it out so that it can be witnessed by the world. And here's what I love. Well, let me say this first, because this is important. What he says next, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God will go to work even on your desires. I love that verse because it is comforting to me to know that just because something seems hard now, it doesn't have to always be hard. You can start off doing something, deciding to do something because this is what God said. It's not what I feel like doing or it's not what I feel like not doing, but I'm going to obey. And God goes to work on you to change your very will. What am I saying? That God will change you. We know we're new creatures, right? And we know that this process of sanctification that Paul's already referred to in Philippians, in this very letter, is a process And part of this process is us simply walking. We know we are changed in the spirit and we are training our flesh. You know, the battleground is the mind to walk after the things of the spirit. And in the process of doing that, God actually causes us to desire to do the right things. We become different people. Just like the Bible says we are. 
Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We've talked about this verse before. I don't have time to preach a whole sermon on it right now. But what that is saying is, you find your delight in Jesus. And we will develop this, by the way, in Philippians chapter 3. But not just that, well, do good things for God and he'll give you whatever you want. That's not what this verse is saying. He will give your heart the right desires. Delight yourself in God, and he will cause you to desire the things that please him. And when we desire to do the things that please him, please him becomes, pleasing him becomes easier. Like I said, next week we're going to get into some stuff that will illuminate this, uh, this concept of delighting yourself in the Lord. But for now, I just want to focus on how he gives us these right desires. There will always be something pulling at your flesh. You know that, right? As long as we are in this world, there will be temptation. But one of the glories of Christianity is that when we agree with God about these things, the things that are sinful, that's what confession means, to say the same thing about it as God says, then he's able and willing to change our desires. And that's what that verse is talking about. Can you imagine how easy it would be to stay in shape if what you craved all the time in terms of your appetite were things like broccoli and carrots, spinach, nuts, whole grains, Occasionally you'd get an urge, a crazy urge to have some lean meat or some fish. If the thought of putting a pizza or a donut in your mouth made you gag. Staying in shape would be a little bit easier, wouldn't it? Ugh, Krispy Kreme. I can't even look at that place. Oh, look, the light's on. Keep driving. If your favorite activity was vigorous exercise. If TV, if video games, if rest in general were burdens you could hardly stand to bear. But now what can we learn from that? What have some of us learned? And some of us have learned it and unlearned it and learned it again. Is that you can cultivate appetites for the things that are good for you. We can reach the point where we actually crave a good run. I can remember that, believe it or not. When we enjoy, when we begin to enjoy the manifested benefits of diet, good diet and exercise, it becomes easier to stay on a good diet and keep exercising. Don't look at me in that tone of voice, Beth. (laughs) And God, (laughs) God is even better than that. He is at work in us not just to do, but to will to do the things that please him. And here's what cracks me up. This is the specific example he gives. We talk about the transforming power of God and how God himself is at work in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. And he says in verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Two observations before we move on to a close. Do all things without murmuring and complaining, disputing. And specifically, do the things that he has commanded us to do. So all things, that means you do your job, you do the things that you have to do, This is a conversation perhaps some of you have had with your children. I've never had to have it with my children because they are naturally inclined 
to do everything that needs to get done in the house. But do you ever get the response when you tell them, uh, hey, would you clean this room up? Would you take the trash out? Would you do such and such? Do they ever give you, but that's not my mess? I'm not going to clean it up because I didn't leave that there. Do they, I'll get a lot of nods here. Well, I'm not going to do that because that's not all mine. And so then we come back with, uh, you know what? All the laundry your mom did this week wasn't hers. All the groceries I bought this week weren't mine. All the grass I mowed wasn't just mine. And we start going over all the things that we share. We've got to do these things. Why do we do these things? Because this is how a house works. This is how a family works. So do these things. But do them without complaining. Do them without disputing. Without arguing. And specifically the things he has commanded us to do. Not just don't complain about your job, don't complain about menial tasks, don't complain about hard things, but don't complain how hard it is to live righteously. Don't whine about the restrictions God has placed on you because those restrictions are for your good. Rejoice instead in the opportunity to please him. Now listen, I've kind of teased my kids. Let me tell you something, and I'll say say it kind of humorously, but it's clearly a fault of mine. Uh, And I find these things so rarely that I feel compelled to share them with you when I do. We were, uh, I mentioned we just got back from Branson and driving there and driving. And I like to drive. I'll be real honest, much as I love my family, I prefer, if I'm going to drive a long way, I prefer to drive alone. So I can crank the music, listen to what I want to listen to, and uh, don't have to worry about pleasing anybody else in the car. But I love my family, and we enjoy our time together. But I suffer from road rage from time to time. And nothing gets me madder, and I know, oh boy, they're already nodding, and they haven't even, I haven't even shared the specific. When I am, and I'm not, I don't want to go 90 miles an hour, not the whole way anyway, I don't, but I do want to go the maximum speed. I want to go, and I say going with the flow of traffic, I want to go with the flow of the fastest guy on the road besides me, okay? I want to get, find somebody who's going fast. But when I get over into the passing lane, and I can't pass anybody, because there's a row of 10, 12 cars in front of me stuck behind that one guy. And here's how it happens. You got a semi that's going 65, and you got a guy come up behind him going 65 and a half. But he doesn't want to touch that pedal because he's enjoying his cruise control. So instead, he gets over to the left lane and takes 5, 10 minutes to pass one vehicle. And everybody stacks. You know what I'm talking about, right? This is what passing gear is for. It's why you have that accelerator. Get over to the left line, left lane, stomp on it, get around and get back in the right lane. That's how it's supposed to work. And I rejoiced when Illinois and these other states said that they were really going to start dropping the hammer on people who cruised in the left lane. I'm like, yeah, but I don't see it happening. I haven't heard of anybody yet who got pulled over for going too slow in the left lane. But man, we keep running up on them. And so what happens? Here's, here's, the, here's the part where I see a fault in myself. We'll be cruising along there behind this row of cars. And, and if there's a dip in the road, I identify the car that's at the head of that. And I'm watching. And as soon as I get, as soon as everything's clear, boom, I pass them. And I, I don't flip them off. I don't do anything like that. But I look. I want to see who it was. And if I can catch their eye and do this, all the better. I just wanted to thank you. Thank you for costing me five minutes on my journey. And the kids, they're so hip to this that we're driving, you know, and they'll see. I won't be saying anything. Sometimes I will. Sometimes I'm like, oh, who's this idiot at the front of this lane? Why can't people? Sometimes I don't say a thing. 
but I get over there and I'll step on it. As soon as I start to speed up, Riley will say, here he goes, here he goes. Watch him, watch him. He's going to do it. He's going to give him the eye. Don't do it, Dad. Don't do it. <laughs> so they turn it into a game. Let it go, Dad. Just let it go. Or it'll be some sweet little old lady and they'll say, don't you feel bad now, Dad? Don't want to give her the evil eye now. I just, I just want to see who it was. Do all things without murmuring or complaining. My kids are turning it into a game, and my wife's like, Scott, just relax. We're on vacation. Enjoy it. I'm like, I can't enjoy it. I, I got to get there. Just a second. Just thinking about it. Just a second. All right. Praise the Lord. Do all things without disputing, without complaining, without murmuring. Rejoice, as Paul is going to say later. And again, I say, rejoice. And then, so he gives him this, because if you, you know, he could have said a hundred things here. This radical idea of God at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the example he gives is, do, do all the things you're supposed to do, but stop complaining about it. And because of that, you will stand out. You will shine like lights in the darkness. It's called just your attitude. And then goes on, verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. What's he saying? If you guys will act like you're supposed to, I get some of the credit for that. Because I planted your church and I trained you. I would hate to think that I invested all of this word in you and it had absolutely no effect on your life. I, oh, I forgot about this. I went into, uh, I was looking for a little coupon book. And uh, dad told me, if you go to such and such a theater, they sell these things. It's a little, it's a little Branson guest card. And it's a book full of, tells you where to go that, that honors this little card. And it'll save you a lot of money. So I went to buy it, and on my way in, I get snagged by this guy. They're everywhere. Hey, are you seeing any shows? And they want, what they want to do is, is talk you into coming to a, just a 90-minute presentation. And if you'll come, they'll give you show tickets or $250 or something. And they really will. It's not a scam. They'll give it to you. The only sketchy part is uh, 90 minutes. Anyway, this guy's talking to me. I said, no, we're not going to do, we're, we're, we're not going to do any presentations. Just kind of want to enjoy the time we're here. And he's like, oh yeah, well, where are you staying? So we're talking a little bit. And he says, well, if you can just come tomorrow morning, this was Saturday. If you just come tomorrow morning at 830, we'll get you out of here in 90 minutes. I said, no, tomorrow's church. He goes, oh, well, if you don't have a place, he's you're on vacation. You're not from here, right? So right. If you don't have a place to go to church, we'd love to see you at Faith Life Church. I said, that's where we're going, going to Keith Morris Church. I told him, so we start talking. Told him how Keith was one of my instructors at Ramah, and he starts talking. So he starts telling me about his family. And everything about the guy, now he was not, uh, there was nothing about it that was offensive. It wasn't in your face. It, you could just tell it was part of the rhythm of his conversation. He would talk about how, uh, well, you know, there's, there's life and death in the power of the tongue. We just began, we were starting this company. We just began to speak the word of God over it. Uh, we spread, and then he starts talking about his, his, his son and how uh, God was involved and, and the things they spoke. It wasn't just a matter of God's been good. He was quoting scripture and scriptural principles that he had applied through his life. And I'm listening to this guy. And this is a layman. This is not a preacher. It's not somebody on staff. I said, man, you have got this stuff down. He goes, I've been in this church since it opened. He says, when you go to Keith Moore's church, these principles get nailed down. And I'm like, that is a beautiful thing. 
Here's a guy who is not just sat under good teaching. He is learning to apply it and share it to the point where it's just, it peppers this conversation. This is what Paul's talking about. If I see this kind of behavior, if I see this stability in you, if I see you doing all things without murmuring and complaining, I'll know that I haven't wasted my time with you. And if it comes to the point, here's how he finishes it up. Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice, on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. If I have to be totally spent in order for you guys to mature in your faith, I'm okay with that. So I want you to be okay with that. I'm rejoicing with you. I'm in prison. And you can rejoice with me because everything that I have done to invest in you has been worth it. I'm rejoicing for you. You rejoice for me. Again, he'll develop this a little bit later. And uh, like I said, well, yeah, and he's going to tell us next, praise the Lord, Tim, you can be coming up here, about uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And then he's going to start talking, get, getting really into this uh, thing about rejoicing even in the midst of unpleasant circumstances. We've talked today about a number of things. And this, uh, I think the central point is this idea of the, the new life. That if we're to live like we know we're supposed to live, it sure would be nice if we wanted to live that way. A lot of times it doesn't start that way. I, uh, I, I've shared this, I think, before when I worked at uh, Canaan Land, which was a ministry founded by Brother Matt Gober. And it was a, men, a, a home one-year program, residential program for men with life-controlling problems. As I've said, when I was there, it was mostly crackheads. And uh, because of the Spartan nature of the place, a person had to be pretty well down before they agreed to come and live there for a year. Uh, so there were there was some pretty restrictive, and we had way more people wanting to get into the program than we could have into the program. Uh, and so it was, we had some pretty strict rules uh, and that they had to agree to before they came. And one of the things that, that was an absolute no negotiation was no smoking. Uh, not just smoking crack. They weren't allowed to smoke cigarettes. And this was a big deal for a lot of them. A lot of them on the phone would say, I don't know, man. I'm giving up crack. I know I can't do drugs. I'm going to have to have a cigarette or something. We're like, just, you know, if you want to be here, this is a non-negotiable. If we catch you with cigarettes, this, on day two, you get kicked out. It's just something that's too, once they're around, you know, they're too easy for other people to get their hands on, so you can't. And I heard not every one of them, but most of them said that one of the first times they ever experienced, I'm talking, many of these guys, most of them were even unbelievers before they came to us. Everybody that came there got saved. We knew they'd get saved once they got there. But when, while they were still unbelievers, they shared that the first time they really experienced the power of God was as soon as they stepped on the property, they lost their desire to smoke. Now, once again, wouldn't quitting be easier if you just didn't want to anymore? Why is quitting smoking so hard? Because people who smoke want to smoke. Same with any other bad habit, right? Wouldn't it be nice if, uh, if that's the way it worked out? You just took the desires away? Now, it doesn't, it's not always that easy. But what I like about that is they had to, they, the people who came and experienced that didn't say, well, I'll come, and if I no longer have the desire to smoke, I'll stay. No, it's like, no, this is worth it. I'm going to come, and I'm going to make this hard decision. And as a result of that obedience, God met them, and what he did was change the desire. 
If we start in obedience, we'll find that God will do this. Sometimes all at once. Sometimes this is a matter of growth. But he will change our desires. He is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But that starts with the new nature. We have to be born again. It's not just salvation from hell. It's receiving that new life that is ours because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.